Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, joined by co-host Aaron Keller. We're back in his office, our new podcast studio. And today we are joined by Kevin Netcher for the very first time, and he is our AIS program coordinator. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Of course. And you run a very important program that some people may not be aware of. It's our AIS. AIS program, which we'll get into in a second. But first, could you tell us about yourself and how you've got into the position you're in today? Yeah. So I've been with Endow since 2012. Um, previously, permanently since 2012. I was a conservation aide for three summers before that. Um, first started out, like many of us, at Gallagher Hatchery, where I spent about six months and then promoted to what was called a safe safe harbor biologist position in Elko. And with that job, I worked exclusively with private landowners promoting safe harbor agreements, which are uh, special agreements through the Fish and Wildlife Service. I won't go into a ton of detail about those. <laughs> um, I did that for a year, and then I promoted to the fisheries biologist for um, the Columbia River drainage in Nevada. And so with that job, I had management over a lot of native trout, so bull trout, yellowstone cutthroat trout, red band rainbow trout. And I did that for up to about two years ago when I moved to Reno and took over the Aquatic Invasive Species Program. Nice. And how is it so far compared to the other positions you've had here? Uh, it's a lot more office time, yeah. which is fine, <laughs> which is good. It's part of the job. Um, but yeah, it's great. I work with a lot of really awesome people. I supervise a lot of really awesome people. Um, it's my first time as a permanent, like having permanent employees. So that's been a learning curve, but um, it's great. And it's really important what you're doing. So for people who don't know, AIS is aquatic invasive species. So what do you think as do we just jump in and get into all of the nitty gritty of what AIS sure. are? <laughs> yeah. So AIS, aquatic invasive species. Um, so they're invasive species that obviously are aquatic, so they're in water. Um, they can be anything from quagga mussels down south, a mollusk, um, to bullfrogs, to northern pike, to goldfish. They're basically any species that can cause ecological or harm or in, like industrial harm. Um, so like quagga mussels have the ability to clog pipes and can be a huge problem for irrigation systems and dams. Um, northern pike... Uh, they eat everything, and they're very hard on a lot of our native fish species as well as our sport fisheries. Um, bullfrogs, uh, very detrimental to our native amphibians. Um, so pretty much anything that can cause harm ecologically or industrial is what we consider aquatic invasive species. And I think I forget that, too. I'm always picturing the quagga mussels. I can't help it when it comes to that job since we – or since when it comes to that topic. Yeah, um, so quagga mussels kind of started Nevada's AIS program. Same with a lot of the western states. Because when quagga mussels showed up in Lake Mead in 2006, it's kind of a oh crap moment for everybody. Yeah. Um, so that's when Nevada started our program to contain them to Lake Mead. And a lot of the other western states started programs to prevent them from in, being introduced into their states. And then so knowing this about aquatic invasive species, what exactly do you, where does your role come in then? Uh, so I coordinate basically the entire program for the state. Um, and so I have five staff members 
who work for me, they're all on our watercraft inspection and decontamination side of things. Um, so they, we, we run inspection stations across the state, um, four at Lake Mead and um, throughout northern Nevada. And those staff, they inspect watercrafts and they de- decontaminate watercrafts when they needed to be because that's the primary way that quagga mussels are moved is through overland on trailered boats. Um, they're, they're, they have a life cycle called veligers, which are microscopic larval form, and they're impossible to see, but they can survive in just any kind of standing water. Um, so, so like if you're coming out of Lake Mead and you got a live wolf full of water and you go to Cummins Lake and you drop that water, you just introduce quagga mussels to a new water body source. Um, so that's why we promote clean, drain, and dry your watercraft. Um, it's actually state law that you have to pull your plug and drain all water out of your watercraft before you move them. Um, but we have those inspection stations to ensure that's being done and then decontaminating when needed. Got it. And like you said, there was that, oh crap, moment in um, 2006, I think 2000, you said, yeah, when they were introduced to Lake Mead. So that is where a lot of your time goes. It seems like it's such an easy thing, doesn't it? It, to me, it sounds overwhelming. I mean, it's, well, I mean, as <laughs> like, far as, like, cleaning and just draining your water. And, oh, yeah. The way to prevent them but, sounds easy, but yeah. it is, um, I effort. mean, it's scary to think, like, once they're in one water, it's not that hard for them to get transferred in another water, and how yeah. do you even keep that under control? So, yeah, so a lot of people, you know, they're just getting busy, and they forget to take those small steps. So that's why we have a huge outreach program, too, to reinforce that message with boaters about why it's important that they take those few steps to drain their boat and clean and dry and make sure they're not don't have any invasive species on it exactly and like you said it really doesn't take that much clean drain and dry your boats yep. so um so that's one piece of your program's effort what do you do for you named multiple things at the beginning of the podcast multiple different invasive species yeah so for for invasive species that aren't quagga mussels i coordinate with a lot of our fisheries biologists on those efforts for eradication and containment um, i do a lot of grant writing to get funds available for those biologists to do that work like currently at cummins lake we have a multi-year northern pike removal effort going on um and so that funding comes through my program i request that funding from the fish and wildlife service and every spring they go out there for for weeks on end electrofishing and removing northern pike from cummins lake um, i coordinate with a lot of the field biologists on bullfrog occurrences too because we don't we know they're kind of all over the state but we really don't have a great idea of exactly where they're at mm-hmm. so I'm starting to develop a database, an AIS database, where we have all those locations stored in one one spot where we can easily reference where we have the invasive species across the landscape. And were these, did these invasive species just get here by people releasing them in our waters, or how did that happen, uh, or do we even know? Varies. Um, like the northern pike, Endow actually did that years ago. So, you know, the science just wasn't as advanced as it is now. And um, a, a biologist thought he was doing the correct thing and introduced northern pike to contain um, a Utah chub population. And then the, the northern pike took over. Took, uh, took over. <laughs> um, bullfrogs and a lot of these other species, it's hard to, it's hard to say how they got there. Um, a lot of it stems from all the way back in the 1800s when they were bringing fi- fish and frogs over from the East Coast and releasing them. So... It's, it's pretty hard to pinpoint down. Yeah, I just didn't know if it was someone who just released one in our waters, and then here we are now with I an mean, issue. Yeah, and that does happen. Um, it, it, 
pet stores is a, a common vector for AIS. People buy goldfish and they don't want to kill them when they're tired of having them or they don't want to take them back to the pet store. So they release them in like a city pond. And there you go. Now you got a goldfish population. So, I mean, the pet owner is thinks they're doing the right thing because they, they don't want to just dispose of their goldfish. So they don't see the harm in letting it go, but it can have pretty significant harm. Yeah, it's like a small... It starts small, and then the effects end up yeah. being big. Yep. I know it's so frustrating for me. We get a lot of messages on Facebook, people wanting to release, not even just aquatic invasive species, different species, asking what the rules and regulations are. The best thing is just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, don't do it, and a lot of the pet stores will, will take it back. So if, you, if you're tired of having that pet, just return it to the pet store. That's true. That's a good point. Aaron, were you going to say, you were looking at me like you were going to say something. It just seems like a lot of, a lot of work to get the message out. Yeah, that's a huge part of my program is that messaging. Um, we work with, uh, they, they call themselves Invasive Species Action Network and with the Fish and Wildlife Service as well. There's a national call, campaign called Don't Let It Loose, um, where we reinforce that messaging at the pet stores. Yeah. Um, they actually have little bags that you take your fish home in that say don't let it loose and have details about how to return it when you're tired with it or don't want it anymore um so yeah they promote that program and then internally Indel also has another similar program in southern nevada um, called don't ditch a fish it's basically the same messaging but just reinforcing that messaging about don't don't release your unwanted pets got it yeah my kids are um they watch fishing videos all the time on youtube and stuff and there's other states like, um, I think mostly like Florida, and that they have like tons of invasive fish and stuff, and I could just see how it could be a problem. Yeah. Like, Some of those fish could live for a long time. And f- yeah, Florida's kind of ground zero for what can happen with invasive species, because you look at like the python in the Everglades and everything else they have down there, like, and that, those probably were just pet owners let, that let them go. And now they have a huge problem with the Florida Everglades with the the python. Yeah. Let that be a learning lesson, because yeah. <laughs> so that's scary how, like, to think. species could get crazy. Nevada is a little different in that it's not water after water after water, so yeah. it has to be picked up and moved. Well, and sp- especially in southern Nevada, it can be a huge problem because in southern Nevada we have a lot of endemic, threatened, and endangered species that are mm-hmm. only found in one location. They're only in one spring source, and it would just take one. One introduction of goldfish or crayfish species or who knows what that could could cause an extinction of that species. So that's yeah, it's really important. And for me, working here at End Out of Me, it's obvious. But could you explain what happens? Like what? How a goldfish? One little goldfish you release into a water could wipe out a population of something else. Yeah. So like these spring sources, they're they're not they're not big, and they're these the the native species are little tiny pupfishes and um, daces and chubs and so when that second species gets introduced they just take up the resources that are no longer available for the native species and they essentially can just outcompete them for food resources for spawning habitat um, for various factors and this this that competition factor can cause the, the extirpation of the native species yeah, you definitely don't want to be the person who makes the species go extinct. And nope. one way not to do that nope. is by releasing non-native fish into our waters. Um, you mentioned crayfish. That was a recent effort we had. Yeah, that's, that's that was a big one. Um, so 
in the Clark County Wetlands Park in Southern Nevada, just adjacent to the Las Vegas Wash. Um, we found a population of Australian red claw crayfish. And so they're native to Australia, but they're a common aquaculture um, species because they actually get quite large. They get to about, can, can reach 12 inches in size. Um, so people actually call them um, freshwater lobsters. Uh, so we, we have no idea how that species got into those ponds. Um, there, it's, it's located in three ponds in the wetlands park. Um, and once we found them, we want to keep them out of the Las Vegas wash because that's directly connected to Lake Mead in the lower Colorado. And so we're trying to prevent that species from spreading throughout the system. Um, and so to do that, there's not any really good way, unfortunately, to eradicate crayfish. There's no chemical that can kill them. They're, they're really hard. But fortunately, this species, um, since they're native to northern Australia, they're very susceptible to cold temperatures. Um, so when we first found them last winter, we immediately drained the ponds um, and hoped that there was enough cold snaps to, to essentially freeze them out. Um, we, we don't think we were successful. We know we weren't successful. We, we knew we probably weren't successful then. Um, so this, about a month ago, in conjunction with uh, Clark County and Southern Nevada Water Authority, we had a huge tra crayfish trapping effort on um, the Clark County Wetlands Park. And unfortunately, we, we did catch three of the Australian red claw crayfish only in one pond now. Um, so maybe it was successful in the two, two other ponds, but it's hard to say. Um, so the next steps with that are going to be, we're going to do um, what's called eDNA, environmental DNA sampling, which is where you're able to detect the DNA just through water samples. And so working with the Desert Research Institute to complete that sampling. And then depending on those results and based off the results of our trapping, we're going to try to drain the, the ponds that they're in for three to four months over winter and hopefully the drying out and we get enough cold snaps that we can extirpate that species. And this is a great example of all the work that goes into trying to get rid of this species that you said it's hard to pinpoint where they came from, but they could have just been one crayfish dumped in the water. Yeah, and here's where we're at. It's probably what happened is, it's hard to say, but it's the ponds that they're in are right next to a major parking lot. Um, yeah. So easy. we can't confirm, but it, it goes to show how easy it is yeah. for them to spread yeah so well we'll take a quick break there but when we get back we have a lot more to get into as far as aquatic invasive species go you are listening to nevada wild if you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today we are joined by Kevin Netcher for the very first time, our Aquatic Invasive Species Program Coordinator here at headquarters. Um, for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. And before the break, we were saying, we were explaining what AIS are and exactly how easy they are to spread. And we got into a lot of the pet store side of things, people releasing unwanted pets and it turns into a problem. But um, something else we're experiencing, which you mentioned, is quagga mussels, which appeared in Lake Mead in 2006. So 
let's get into that issue. <laughs> yeah, so we unfortunately we do have quagga mussels in Lake Mead. Um, they're also present. Utah has them in Lake Powell, and they actually go to downstream um, to Lake Havasu and all the way to the Sea of Cortez. Um, so they're pretty well spread throughout the lower Colorado, and that was all caused by watercraft movement, um, boat infected boats, infested boats moving to new locations. Um, they first show up at Lake Mead, and then a few years later they show up in Lake Powell because um, there's a lot of people that go back and forth between those boats or those reservoirs. Um, yeah, so so quagga mussels are they're actually native to um, Ukraine, which oh, yeah it goes to show how far they've traveled, how far they come. And there's there's two species: there's quagga mussels and there's zebra mussels, and they're very similar species. They have the same impacts. They they cause a lot of biofouling, and they're just nasty little creatures. Um, but they first showed up in the U.S. I believe in the mid '80s, um, and they probably came from cargo ships. Um, the big tanker ships um, who had come from Ukraine or Eastern Europe and really saw their water into the Great Lakes. And so that's where the infestation originally started. Um, Unfortunately, zebra mussels now are very widespread across the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River Delta, um, into Texas. Uh, They've showed up in South Dakota recently, um, so they're pretty widespread. Quagga mussels, not so much. Quagga mussels are mostly contained to the lower Colorado. Um, but yeah, we, we doing everything we can to contain the quaggas to lower Colorado while also preventing new zebra and quagga infestations throughout the rest of Nevada and the Western U.S. Okay, so, um, so you said, so quagga mussels are basically in the lower Colorado, which is how they made their way into Lake Mead. And now it just seems like this daunting effort to stop them from getting into other waters. Yeah. So we have, it is, um, we have our inspection stations at Lake Mead and those are, that's our, what we call our containment program. So we're trying to contain them to Lake Mead in the lower Colorado, Lake Mojave as well. And so every boat that comes off of those two reservoirs, we try to inspect to ensure that they pull their plug, that they're clean, drain, dry, that uh, that they're not carrying any mussels or villagers. Um, and boats that have been in the water, we call it long-term, or for more than five days, we require decontamination. Um, and so those are done at our, our WID stations, watercraft inspection and decontamination stations. It's 100% free. Just show up. Um, there's always... Most days there's a technician there. Um, we also have a number, which I, sorry, I don't have that off the top of my head. Endow.org. <laughs> um Where you can call to, to schedule those decontaminations. Um, yeah, so that's our, and to decon boats, uh, we use heated water, um, water heated to at least 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and we flush that, and that's enough to kill the villagers. And so we flush that through the entire boat through the engine if it's a ballast boat through the ballast bags um, just to ensure that that water reaches all parts of the anywhere that villagers could be um, and yeah essentially we're we're washing your boat for you so it comes out shiny yeah, yeah exactly in my mind when I picture AIS I'm picturing the photo of um, boat parts just encrusted with the muscles so could you explain i don't know if everyone listening has seen pictures like that could you explain just how what they do the damage that quagga muscles do yeah so in my office i have a, a state of nevada license plate that is 100 percent covered in, in muscles you can't see any part of the license plate all you see is muscles um so they they just 
can survive at very high densities and just can encrust entire boats, entire dams. Yeah, they're just and why they're a biofouling is they they can grow so heavily within a pipe that they actually cause the pipe to not just the plug that water can't flow through the pipe anymore. Um, so for like Hoover Dam, they're a huge maintenance problem for that facility because they're always having to clean out their pipes and flush all the muscles out of them so they can continue to have water go through the dam. Exactly. So not only do these impact our native fish populations, but on top of it, they're yeah. a problem for uh, right, like the economy. Yeah. Because they get so when they get so big and crusted that they plug stuff, but then they're also so small that you can't see them. Yeah. And then when when you get a established population, like that's a lot of creatures that are consuming nutrients. Um, so they're, they're constantly filtering nutrients out of the water so they can actually cause lakes to become nutrient poor, um, which is, you know, it has impacts up the food web for, for other f- desirable species. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then obviously, I mean, the decontamination stations, those are in, um, on Lake Mead in Vegas, but Vegas, Lake Mead isn't our only lake. So are we doing, do we have efforts in other parts of the states? Yes, so so we have our program throughout northern Nevada as well. And most of those stations are seasonal stations just because northern Nevada, the most reservoirs, yeah, it's colder. <laughs> most most reservoirs freeze. Um, but those stations operate a little bit differently. Instead of inspecting boats coming off the reservoir, they inspect boats before they go into the reservoir. Um, so we have them at like South Fork and Little Haunt and then Rye Patch and Topaz. And so those stations, when a, when a boat owner pulls up, they they'll first ask him where was like where's the last time you were boating because if it you know if they say Lake Powell it's gonna or Lake Mead they're gonna have more questions um, but if they you know if they say that just that same reservoir like two days ago um, they'll go through the process and inspect them ensure that they're they're good good and clean to launch and then let them go um, if they did come from like Lake Mead and they'd probably perform an inspection just to ensure that they're clean drain and dry and if they need, they have the capability to do a decontamination at those reservoirs as well. Um, so just basically ensuring that there's no risk of them introducing quagga or zebra mussels to that non-infested water body. It's more proactive, stopping the boats before they come in the water. Yeah. Um, how long could aquatic invasive species, or I guess quagga mussels specifically, live on a watercraft after it's been used? It depends on, like, the temperature outside and everything. Um, shorter in Vegas and, like, up in Reno, but, like, a safe estimate, I would say two weeks. Yeah. A villager can probably survive in the in the standing water for at least two weeks. And then if they're dry, how long? Uh, if they're dry, once they're desiccated out, they'll, they'll die. So that, yeah, so that's why we promote the draining and drying mm-hmm. of the boat because they have to have that standing water to survive. That makes sense. Um, and then we also have our sticker. What are what are you yeah, doing, Kelly? We have a sticker. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, that's where my yeah. mind was going. We have our aquatic. Sorry, everyone. It's Monday morning, and we're yeah. <laughs> just finding our energy now. We needed more coffee before this. But um, can you tell us about our AIS sticker? Who's required to have them, how you get them, and what they do? Yeah, so there are AIS decal. Um I better get the prices right. So we have a motorized that is $13 and a non-motorized that is $6. And any watercraft that is capable of retaining water and is being used in Nevada has to have the AIS decal and they have to have that displayed. Um, that's for non-residents as well as residents. 
And what we use that funding source for is basically to fund this program. We we match a lot of our federal grants with that um, AIS decal fee. Um, and we also do some research and some um, monitoring with that decal fee as well. So we have biologists throughout northern Nevada that on those non-infested reservoirs, um, they'll go sampling. They'll do um, two methods. They'll collect water sample for microscopy, which is basically a scientist looking through the entire water with a microscope looking for villagers. And then they also sample for quantitative PCR analysis, which is similar to that environmental DNA, DNA analysis, but a little bit different. Um, and they collect those samples, and those are all shipped off to labs for analysis just to confirm that there's no quagga or zebra mussels present. And so we pay for all that lab analysis and that some of the biologists' time with that um, AIS decal fee as well. So basically, you're using our waters. Um, you're putting our boat out, launching your boat into our waters. So um, buy a sticker, and all of that goes yep. into our work to keep no, our lakes. We really reservoirs. rely on that that decal fee. We this program wouldn't be able to operate without that decal fee. Um, so it's it's really important. It's really important and very affordable. And you just go on endow.org and you can purchase yep. it there. Endow.org. Um, and yeah, they, they'll they'll ship it to you. They mail it to you pretty quick once you buy it. I get mine for my kayak. I don't even know if I need it because it's a sit-on-top kayak. I don't know if it retains water, but I get it anyway to support our efforts. And it's, um, or sorry, you go to endowlicensing.com, yeah. but there's links on endow.org too. You just go there, purchase it real quick, and it comes not long after at yeah. all. Yeah, that's great. We're able to use that to leverage federal funding that we wouldn't be able to get if we didn't have that that fee for to match those funds. Exactly. More to say. Did we cover the sticker enough? Got it. <laughs> got it. Is there we're on our last few minutes, is there any other outreach you want to mention before we wrap up here? Oh, probably. There's, um, we could go on all day. This is Kevin's <laughs> whole job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just just be proactive when you're out there. Um, it, it's just not watercraft to you when you're out fishing. You know, felt-soled waders can transport New Zealand mud snails. Um, so just, just be proactive and clean all your gear, fishing rods, boats, kayaks, waders, everything before before you change water bodies. Um, it's it's really simple. Just, just let it dry for a few days, or you can put it in the freezer overnight, or... Yeah, just make sure everything's clean and clean and dry before you. Oh, I know. What can they do to clean? Is it is there like a use bleach or what? Like, what's a good suggestion for that? Uh, you could use bleach, but honestly, there there's yeah, just drying them. There's some chemicals you can use. There's like a chemical called Vercon Aquatic, but I don't know how. That's pretty hard to buy. Yeah. Um, mainly just making sure they're clean and dry. Um, freezing does work. If like have your waders, you can put them in the freezer, and that will kill anything that's on there. But yeah, just practically cleaning your gear. So and for like boat, well, like kayaks for example. So would hosing them off? Oh, for sure. Letting them dry. Yeah. That does the job. Yeah. See, so it is really simple. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up other equipment. It's really anything that touches the water. Yeah. Clean dream. Because we haven't even talked about the like the plant invasive species. That's well, a whole nother podcast we'll have to get other, you back on for. Yeah, there's aquatic invasive species that are plants as well. So But after listening to this one, so clean, drain, and dry and don't ditch the fish. Yeah, don't <laughs> That's let it lose. That's my takeaway. <laughs> so well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Um 
I'm glad to know, I didn't know before working at Endow that we had this program and I'm glad to know with such a daunting task that we do have a program looking out for Nevada's waters. Yep, I'm glad to know that you're actually doing your part. You're cleaning your kayak, your <laughs> I do, I do. I yeah, was on it. I was like, we got to get this sticker to yeah. my fiance when we got our kayaks. Yeah. And then we always stop, wash them down, and dry them. Yeah. <laughs> Can't work it end out and not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a terrible person. So, well, thanks again, Kevin. We appreciate you for joining us this Monday morning and bearing with us through our lack of energy. And thank you, everyone, for listening. That does it for this week's Nevada Wild. again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.